Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Dr. Kate Devlin. Psychedelics, the term coming from the Greek and translating as soul manifesting or alternatively mind manifesting, are types of drugs that have a history going back thousands of years for both spiritual and recreational use. Following a period of medical research from the 1950s to the early 1970s, most of these substances were classified as drugs of abuse with no recognised medical value. But in what's been described by experts as the biggest breakthrough in the treatment of mental health for 50 years, psychedelics are back, baby. We're joined today by Dr. Matt Wall, a cognitive neuroscientist at the medical imaging company in Vicro and Imperial College London, which is home to the first formal academic centre for psychedelic research in the world. Matt specialises in fMRI, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging, and in psychopharmacology. Hello, Matt, and welcome to The Bunker. Hi, Kate. Thanks. Great to be here. Matt, let's start with a quick explanation of psychedelics. When you talk about the use of psychedelic drugs in psychiatry, what are these drugs that you're referring to? So there's there's quite a few going on at the moment. So we often talk about what people call the classic psychedelics. So these would be LSD, psilocybin, which comes from magic mushrooms, and another one called DMT, plus a couple of others that are less used, like mescaline, which comes from uh, cactuses in, in uh, North America. So they all have a particular action at a particular receptor in the brain called the serotonin 2A receptor or the 5-HT2A receptor. And that's what defines them as classic psychedelics. But then there are a number of other kind of non-classic or psychedelic-like compounds that are being really actively investigated uh, in the same way or a similar way. Things like MDMA, ecstasy, uh, and ketamine, and some more exotic things like ibogaine, which comes from a, a tree bark in West Africa. So who benefits from the use of these? What kind of conditions can drugs like this address? So uh, most of the work that's been done so far has been in uh, depression and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So uh, with depression, people have tended to use the classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin. Uh, and with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, they've tended to focus on the use of MDMA. 
But really, the interesting thing about these compounds is that they're what we call transdiagnostic. So they're not tied to any particular disorder. Unlike normal kind of psychiatric medicines, it's a really different paradigm. So with, with for instance, say, anti-schizophrenic drugs, the theory is that uh, you have an excess of, of a particular chemical called dopamine in schizophrenia. So we're going to give you some drugs which will reduce your level of dopamine, and that will hopefully help treat the condition. With psychedelics, it's a different way of thinking about it. The pharmacology of it is not tied to any particular disorder. And in fact, we think that probably they're, they're going to be useful for a range of disorders, what people often call internalizing disorders. So disorders which are characterized by some kind of depression or anxiety or kind of bodily symptoms, somatic symptoms, um, as distinct from disorders like psychosis and, and things like that, which are often called externalizing disorders, where there's kind of disruption to behavior and things like that. Um, and uh, we've got some data that they're useful in addiction, um, alcohol addiction, smoking addiction, and people are testing them for obsessive compulsive disorder. We're running a trial at the moment for eating disorders, various kinds of chronic pain problems. Uh, so it's a whole range of possible applications. Well, this is incredible, just this, the sheer scope of this. And I'm very curious about your work and how you determine what these drugs do and the effects they have. Can you give us a, a quick overview of the way that fMRI plays a role in this? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, they have a lot of different effects. So they have really three classes of effects, I would say. So the first is the kind of obvious one that people... Uh, use them for recreationally. So when you take these drugs, you, you have this very intense, acute experience where you hallucinate and you have a, a trip, right? Um, so that's, that's the first class of effect. The second class really is that people have found that they, they have this quite rapid and intense antidepressant effect in the depression trials. So particularly psilocybin and, and other drugs like ketamine, it will lift people out of their depression very rapidly. And that effect also seems to persist somewhat over time. So even after the, the acute effects wear off the trip, uh, you get these antidepressant effects, which last for days, weeks, months, maybe even longer. And the third class of effect, which is maybe related to the second one, the more clinical effects, is effects on neuroplasticity, which is direct effects on the brain, effects on synapses and, and neurons in the brain, and really changing the way that the brain operates, changing maybe the number of synapses uh, on particular neurons, and maybe helping grow new synapses or new neurons. And this is one of the things that people are really interested in, so these are things that you can look at through medical imaging that you can see in scans of people's brains? Yes. Yeah, so with the clinical trials that we've done with my colleagues at Imperial, we've always used fMRI scans as a key part of the clinical trial because we're interested in the clinical effects. We're interested in actually helping people get better with these things. But we're also really, you know, we're scientists. We're interested in, in how they actually work and what we can see them doing in the brain. 
and um, so we, we've we've been able to image people in various ways. Sometimes looking at the the, the really acute effects with the, the trip itself, and sometimes with patients looking uh, looking at their brains before and after they do the therapy in order to try and figure out uh, what's changed. And can you talk us through some of your recent findings? What kind of things are you are you seeing? So the theory about how these things work at a kind of at a brain level is something that's been developed as a result of of these uh, fMRI studies. So what we do is we use a a technique called resting state fMRI, which is you have people lying in a scanner. Sometimes when you're doing fMRI, you have people doing little uh, games or looking at pictures or movies or something. But uh, resting state fMRI is different. You have people lying in the scanner doing nothing and you just scan their brain. And it turns out this is quite a powerful technique for looking at not really brain activation, but the connections between different regions of the brain. In your normal waking state of consciousness, you have a quite a well-defined pattern of connectivity in the brain. Lots of areas of the brain are all talking to each other. And that's quite a consistent pattern that we see across different people and across even across different species. What happens when you take a psychedelic is that that pattern gets extremely disrupted and you have areas of the brain that normally are talking to each other will not talk to each other quite so much and areas of the brain that don't normally talk to each other will start talking to each other more. So it really kind of flattens the, the hierarchy of brain connectivity that we see and produces this much more random effect on the brain. And we can even see the, the kind of the remains of that effect or effects like that a couple of days after when we do these follow-up scans on patients. And we think that this disruption of the brain's network is probably a really key feature that's helping to drive these clinical effects. We think that's probably related to how much better people are feeling after they have this therapy. Given that there is such a profound effect happening there and it seems really significant, these are clearly quite powerful drugs. Is it tricky for you as researchers to get clearance to work with these drugs? I mean, how much more difficult is it compared to, say, getting ethics clearance for medical studies in general? It's insanely difficult. It's it's horribly, horribly difficult. So these drugs at the moment, they're what's called Schedule 1 in, in the UK, uh, which is a way of classifying drugs, which means that they have no medical purpose at all. So there are other illegal drugs, like, for instance, uh, opiate drugs like morphine, uh, which is more or less the same as, as heroin, which are Schedule 2 because they clearly have a, a very clear use in medicine for pain relief and so on. So there's no particular reason why these drugs need to be Schedule 1. And what being Schedule 1 means is that you have to have a special license from the Home Office to work with these drugs and store them and buy them and, and so on. Uh, it makes them incredibly expensive to buy because there's only a few labs in the world that, that are able to produce them. You have to have lots of facilities, like you have to have a special locked safe that's bolted to the floor in a locked room and, and so on and so on uh, to store these drugs. Uh, it just makes the whole research process incredibly more difficult and time consuming and expensive. So is the UK behind on this? Because we see reports from other countries where they're doing this research. So how different is the UK's approach? I mean, the the, the UK's drug policy is really quite far behind in all kinds of ways, not just with these drugs. You know, if you look at uh, the US and Canada, they are way ahead on things like medical cannabis. 
And some U.S. states are starting to talk about uh, reclassifying or decriminalizing psychedelics now. In Canada, in some provinces, they've just legalized recreational cannabis, basically. And Canada's also talking about legalizing psychedelics. Australia is really leading the way, and they've just licensed psilocybin and MDMA for use as proper medicines. You can get MDMA and psilocybin prescribed in Australia now, in theory, although I think there's still only a few doctors using it because it's only been a couple of months. Uh, so, yeah, the UK is way behind. And, uh, you know, we don't really have much of a conversation about drug policy in the UK at the moment, I think. there's It's just, it's not really on the political agenda for, for any of the main parties, unfortunately, which is a real shame. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Why do you think this interest in psychedelics is happening now? Do you think there's something at this time that makes us, as a society, more receptive to the idea of psychedelics? Is there a trend for it? I mean, there are certain, there's certainly a kind of groundswell of enthusiasm about it. A lot of it's been kicked off by uh, uh, stuff in the popular media and the popular press. There was a, um, a really popular book by a journalist called Michael Pollan, who then went on to do a Netflix series about this. And I think that's started a lot of the current trend. And we're seeing, I mean, interestingly, I don't know if you could say this is a good thing or not, but we're seeing psychedelics making a bit of a comeback in, in the recreational usage kind of black market as well. Whereas, you know, previously it would be, it had been other things, more stimulant or MDMA maybe. Um, now we see LSD and, and, and psilocybin coming back in that space as well. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that because the findings that you're talking about all refer to the medicinal use of psychedelic drugs that are administered in measured doses under the supervision of licensed medical professionals. But as you say, we're also seeing a lot of discussion around these drugs being used outside of those clinical settings. And there are people are reporting benefits, but it's a really tricky area because, as you say, drug policy in the UK certainly doesn't support that. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are now um, psychedelic retreats that you can go to in places where they're legal or kind of semi-legal. Uh, so there, there are retreats in the Netherlands where you can go. Um, there are retreats in Jamaica. And, and these, I mean, I, I don't know much about them. I, I don't think they tend to have 
licensed medical professionals working there. I think it's a it's a difficult area because you don't really know what you're what you're walking into with these things. Then you have people um, doing what they call microdosing with these substances as well. So that's taking a, a very tiny dose usually of LSD or psilocybin. Some people use MDMA. Some people do combinations of things. And the people that are into that, they claim uh, some benefits from doing that. So they take the dose that you don't really feel. You don't get any hallucinogens, hallucinations. You don't get a trip. But they claim that it makes them more alert or happier or have less anxiety or uh, more creative. Uh, I think the jury's still out on that one as well. There's not a lot of evidence that it actually can work. So as someone who lives with a chronic mental health condition, I'm really wary of taking any substances that might alter my conscious state. And I've been through a period of psychosis when I was in my 20s. And so I'm really nervous at the thought of taking anything that might remind me of that. But I hear these positive stories of other people's experiences of things like microdosing. But are there people for whom this kind of treatment just wouldn't be suitable? I think there probably are, yes. So that's that's a really good point that you've you've raised there. So most of the, uh, well, pretty much all of the clinical trials that have been done with psychedelics up to this point, they've generally been really careful to exclude people with any kind of psychotic disorder. Sometimes they even exclude people who have a first-degree relative that's had any kind of psychotic disorder or other things like bipolar disorder. Um because of this, this fear that it, it, you know, it may exacerbate those problems for some people. But I mean, the idea with these treatments is that they will at some point become more widely available. And at that point, I think we're going to have to grapple with this problem of which people are they really suitable for and, and which people really shouldn't be taking them. And same issue recreationally as well. I think there are, there are some people who get on fine with these drugs uh, and there are others who uh, have problems with them. And when you mentioned there about, you know, if, if they do become more widespread, they may, you know, this, if they prove successful, they might end up being regulated and licensed uh, for prescription within the UK. Is that a very long drawn out process? Well, I think so. Um, in the UK, because of the, the legal situation at the moment. I mean, like I said, in Australia, that's already happened. Uh, in the US, it's likely that uh, there's an organization called the called the MAPS organization, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science. And they, they've invested a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money into getting uh, MDMA trials done. And with the aim of getting MDMA licensed as a therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder um, with the, the American Food and Drug Administration. And that's, that's an incredibly difficult and long drawn out process, but they are nearly there. And the expectation is that that will happen sometime next year. There's another company called Compass, uh, which is trying to do the same thing for psilocybin for depression. Uh, so again, you know, the U S is, is leading the way U S and Australia are leading the way we're, lagging behind a bit in the UK. The hope, I guess, is that if these things get through the the FDA, maybe they they then turn these companies then turn their attention to the the EMA, the European Medicines Association, try to make some progress there. If there's enough of a positive result there, 
and there's enough of a kind of groundswell of public demand for these things, then then maybe it will start to move things in the right direction in this country as well. You mentioned MDMA there, and I was recently having a conversation with someone about how animals respond to recreational drugs. And they were telling me about a study that showed that octopuses on MDMA show much greater sociality and they get very touchy-feely with each other. And I wanted to know if they were waving their arms in the air and going, whoop, whoop. And I just think this is fascinating, but octopus brains are so very different from human brains. So in this case, we're not just seeing drugs here as a form of therapeutic treatment, but this is this is about the discovery of brain chemistry differences and about how brains work. And you mentioned that earlier about other species. So that, that must be a fascinating new insight. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds like a brilliant study. There's, there's some old stuff where they gave spiders a load of different uh, psychedelics as well and then looked at the kind of webs they produced and there were these, they ended up with these really weird chaotic patterns in the webs rather than the normal regular web patterns oh but yeah wow. i mean so the yeah so the 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 molecule that psychedelics mimic in the brain serotonin uh, is is very evolutionarily conserved so yeah i think serotonin is definitely in octopuses and lizards and fish and 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 what have you and yeah maybe it will have some kind of similar effects there but but your point about using them to investigate the mind and the brain is a really good one as well. And I think we're we're some way off from that. So we're, we're very focused on these kind of clinical uses. But for me, as a, a kind of psychologist and scientist, I would love to use these things in a more kind of basic science way, just to look at how the brain works and how the mind works. These are the most powerful consciousness altering things that we know of you know you with with psychedelics like dmt you can you can literally zap people away from this reality entirely into a you know another dimension of uh, alien beings and and craziness uh, so i would love to be able to use these compounds as, as kind of probes of consciousness and probes of the mind and the brain to try and figure out how these things are working i think we're still some way off from that and the legal situation is a problem there again as well Oh, when we say these things are mind expanding, we really do mean it. They really can be, yeah. Matt, thank you very much for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you. It was great. I'd like to remind listeners in the UK that for anyone seeking crisis support, the Samaritans can be contacted on 116 123 or you can email joe at samaritans.org. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get perks like ad-free episodes. I'm Dr Kate Devlin, and thank you for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Dr Kate Devlin. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.